Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by Lee Phillips, a science writer and political journalist. Lee's work has appeared in Nature, Science, The Guardian, and Jacobin, amongst many other outlets. His areas of specialization include climate change, energy systems, the earth system, and microbiology. Lee is also the author of two books, The People's Republic of Walmart and Austerity Ecology. Welcome back, Lee. Hi, how's it going? Good to be uh, here back. It's going good, and we're trying something new today on Decouple, um, doing this video feed. We're going to get this up on YouTube, so that's, that's pretty exciting. We were just both kind of dappering ourselves up here, but... Lee, you know, for, for our audience, um, you were on episode 10 back in July of 2020. The podcast has come a long way. We're at episode 41 now. Um, so some of our listeners may need a refresher. Um, yeah, so give, give our listeners a little refresher. Tell them a little bit about yourself and what you're all about. You know, it's, the, it's that Robert Bryce question of you're, you're sitting down at the dinner party oh. And there's a keener, someone, who, someone who's like keen and interested and you can talk about your childhood, you can talk anything, the, the floor is open, Lee. Give, give us your personal set. Uh, I'm, I'm just, a, I'm a science journalist. Um, I worked in Brussels covering the European Union for almost 10 years. Um, I, uh, yeah, I mean, you basically covered it in the, in the intro there. I, but I, I guess if there's a, if there's a sort of, um, you know, my unique selling point um, is that I also write a lot about the crossroads of science and society and uh, the politics of a lot of scientific issues. And, and I'm a lefty. Um, <laughs> and I write regularly. I write regularly for, for Jacobin um, uh, on sort of scientific issues, awesome. as well as other publications that, yeah. Yeah. I have to say for the listeners, Lee's, Lee was a major inspiration for, for the podcast and this whole idea of not just looking at the, the decoupling technologies, but the, the politics that can make it happen. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's a major question. And, you know, Lee's book, uh, The People's <clears throat> Republic of Walmart, I think really kind of dives into a potential vision of, of, you know, how we can achieve that. And also, I mean, we're talking Bill Gates today. We're talking about his new book, How to Avoid yeah, a Climate yeah. Disaster. And I'm sure some of these issues are going to come up. So Lee, um, let's just get a gut reaction to the book, scale of one to 10. What do you score in it? Is it worth reading? You recommend it to the audience? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's, it's a solid, solid seven and a half uh, out of 10. Um, I, I liked it. I liked it. And this is strange as a socialist to say, like, I, I like what the billionaire wrote. Yeah. Um, He's, I don't know, I guess if, if I, if there has to be a world of billionaires and, you know, as usually we say things, so the lefties say things like, um, you know, uh, the existence of billionaires is a policy failure or even it's a structural failure. Um, uh, if there have to be billionaires, I think Bill Gates is probably my favorite of them because <laughs> he, he takes, he takes um, the problem of markets very seriously. Um, and it's interesting you mentioned my, my second book that co-wrote with economist Mihal Rzborski, Pierce Republic of Walmart, it's about exactly this. It's about pl economic planning and the limitations of markets and the history of the economic calculation debate. Uh, yeah. yeah. What, what would you, out of 10, what would you give it? Oui, oui, oui. Uh, six, 6.7. But I would, I would strongly endorse um, that people read it and maybe pirate it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that people read it. You know, and I think what's interesting about Bill Gates is, you know, he has taken this interest in some of the world's problems in terms of, you know, certainly global health and now climate change. And I mean, he has access to the brightest minds and he reads like, you know, this guy really reads, you know, like you look at the book list and what he's cramming through and he's reading like, you know, really chat, like he reads all of Vaclav Smil's work on energy. <clears throat> so he's, he's very, very well educated. And again, I think, through his um, investments as well. He's able to really, you know, there's tons of startups that he's involved with. He's an intelligent man. It's useful, to, I think, to get his perspective as much as I, you know, I agree. I, I think uh, billionaires are, you know, the existence of billionaires is, is a striking kind of condemn, condemnation of, um, you know, our political system. 
Um, and, and certainly, you know, there's a big arguments to be had about, you know, kind of the, the NGOization of, of global health, I think is, is a big concern. And I think, you know, Bill Gates is famous for the Microsoft kind of antitrust mon monopoly. And, and to, a, to a degree, I think he, he has to be careful about monopolizing, you know, the, the discourse on public health and, and on, uh, on climate as well. Yeah. Um, I, I, eventually, at the moment, I still think broadly speaking, um, his interventions with respect to uh, realism around uh, technological realism and their quibbles they have, but um, certainly compared to the vast majority of what, say, environmentalists uh, who would be pushing for a 100% renewable energy strategy or decentralization, um, uh, you know, uh, local solar plus storage kind of, kind of um, um, solutionism. Um, he, he's a breath of fresh air uh, on that front. Um, I think it's, it's great that he's interviewed. And I would say, <clears throat> you know, he makes a lot of, sort of uh, similar um, arguments around um, with respect to pandemics. A lot of the analysis he has with respect to pandemics, I think is, is excellent uh, with respect to the need for the build out of global pandemic monitoring, uh, including uh, clinics and uh, just ready to go um, uh, vaccine manufacturing capacity and recognizing that uh, if we do this, it will cost, you know, tens of billions of dollars and without much likelihood of profitability. So this simply has to be a government endeavor. So although for all those reasons, I think that he's, he's, he's a unique, it, he, I, he's the only billionaire I know of who is very serious about the limitations of markets. And I think that's, that's what I really, really appreciate uh, about him. And that goes with climate change as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, that's uh that's very interesting. You know, one of the things I really like about the book is sometimes it's hard to keep track uh, of the climate change debates of the IPCC science. Um, and I feel like he, he, it's not that he dumbs it down, but he makes it very understandable um, yeah, in, terms, yeah. in terms of that kind of a summary. And, and, you know, recently I've been having a lot of guests on um, who you know, let's just say they see climate change as, you know, a problem, but perhaps not our most urgent one, you know, that are, I don't know where to put it. I mean, I had a guest who kind of refused to, to even use the scale of one to 10 for, you know, how much climate should affect our energy choices. Um, but, you know, like folks like Michael Schellenberger, oh, wow. um, you know, Ted Nordhaus, where it's kind of like, you know, climate's like diabetes, it's kind of a pragmatic incrementalist thing. And, you know, it's like, it's not fashionable amongst eco-modernists or many eco-modernist thinkers, you know, there's a real rejection of, of the alarmism and catastrophism, which, you know, yeah. I share to the degree that those alarmist and catastrophist folks are not, you know, recommending anything beyond, you know, degrowth and, you know, I think a real failed analysis of energy in terms of, you know, 100% renewables, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, I still personally maintain a, a, a huge concern about climate. I mean, there's this paradox of needing to um, deal with extreme poverty, which is by necessity going to involve a lot of fossil fuel use and an energy transition towards fossil fuels in the developing world, away from biomass and things like that. Um, but, you know, it has implications in the long term. Um, and, you know, what, what I think, like with many of my guests, what I found is, you know, they'll seize on a single issue as a result of climate change and say, oh, yeah, sea level rise. Well, you know, we can adapt to that. But the, the issue is that there's it's kind of multifactorial. There's so many things that play into each other. Yeah. I mean, just from the perspective of heat stress, I mean, there were something like 10,000 people that died in Europe back in the early 2000s as a result of a, of a heat impact. That's that's one stress. But stresses on agriculture. Um, one thing I really like that Gates talked about was, you know, the impact of extreme weather events. Yes, deaths as a result have gone down by a hundredfold. That's an incredible accomplishment and has to do with, you know, development on the back of fossil fuels. But, you know, was it Hurricane Maria set Puerto Rico back 20 years in terms of their infrastructure? And so, yeah. yes, you know, we can continue to develop and, and hopefully, you know, get greater and greater adaptation tools through innovation. But, you know, if we have this anchor we're dragging behind ourselves of constantly having to rebuild our infrastructure from extreme weather events, that's, that's an issue. And, and, you know, the list goes on, ocean acidification, impacts on seafood, um, you know, conflict over, you know, 
scarce resources, refugee flows, when taken collectively, I mean, for me, I'm alarmed. I'm, I'm very worried. And of course, we know that the more we do now, the greater impact we have, like the investment of reducing emissions now versus in 20 years is huge. And maybe it's as a father, you know, thinking a little more long term, I, I maintain a, a very great degree of concern. And so, you know, of course, I, I share the, the kind of eco-modernist vision of, okay, well, let's, we need to use all the available tools. We need to, you know, pursue genetic engineering for adaptation of crops. We, I, you know, I'm obviously a huge fan of nuclear energy in terms of that fundamental transition from combustion to fission. I think that's absolutely essential. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure that, that that was one of my, like one of the ways I appreciated that. Yeah. I think he really intelligently pulls it all together for this kind of bird's eye view of the problem of climate change. Oh yeah, I would, uh, I would definitely say that I, I was looking at the, um, uh, the, the beginning of the book to see like, okay, so who's his, who's his ghostwriter? Right. And you know, there were, there were ghostwriters for his two previous books or co-writers, I suppose. Uh, but there doesn't seem to be any uh, listing of a ghostwriter for this one. It seems like he did write this one himself. So that's really impressive. There, you're right. There's lots of passages where he, I mean, the, uh, the, the bit that I, remember quite striking was his explanation of the difference between power and energy yeah and uh that's the frustration that i have in a lot of uh, environmental reporting uh journalism where uh, you know a lot of journalists uh covering this beat don't really um uh they use power in that sort of popular sense that it's 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 a synonym for energy and he's very clear about you know what power is that is energy per uh unit of time second and uh, doesn't it very clear um, alar be alarmist or not alarmist? I would argue that it's we should be alarmist about what is it's appropriate to be alarmist about. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things, certainly um, in terms of an understanding of deep time, uh, that makes climate change uh, particularly frightening to me is the recognition that we're putting out um, uh, greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide in particular at a rate many, many times higher than the, uh, the, the rates of production of, of carbon, of, of greenhouse gases by generally um, internal earth sort of processes, uh, large igneous provinces during some of the, uh, the, the greatest uh, mass extinction events in, in, the, in, in the past of the Earth's history. And we know that um, these sort of massive burps out of, 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 of the earth of, of carbon dioxide have huge um, impact on, on biodiversity. And that, that's the thing that really freaks me out. Um, and that's actually, honest, uh, honestly, that's something sometimes that a lot of, it, even the most alarmist environmental activists don't really talk about. They don't talk about the uh, deep time. They will talk about sea level rise, or refugees or heat stress, but it's that, um, that big sort of geological unknown uh, that really that's the one that keeps me awake at night but i'm yeah i'm not as worried about uh, sea level rise but that one that one like brr, that's yeah that's really fucking scary you know it's, it's exactly that it's all a question of time scale and you know ipcc tends to set their limits in terms of predictions at 2100 and fair to a degree in terms of the uncertainties of modeling as we go further but yeah. almost certainly things will not just stabilize there and we won't have to worry about it at that point and you know if we're thinking you know i, I really love Stuart brand sort of like long now you know ten thousand year thing yeah. even like kind of more traditional like seven generations thinking remains a major concern to me and i, I yeah. think i think it's an interesting argument that you know in in previous times with these rapid transitions i mean it was still over ten thousand a hundred thousand years in terms of the permian mass extinction and things like that the rate of, of co2 being put into the atmosphere and in our case it's hundred years maybe or 200 years yeah, yeah revolution exactly. and and you know obviously in the past um adaptation of life occurred you know due to that process of you know natural selection and evolution and genetic yeah. change and certain organisms that reproduce very quickly we could adapt you know and that's and that's why life kind of boiled down to more simple life forms and obviously humans are not limited in terms of our adaptation by simple processes of natural selection we have culture and technology um, we're a highly adaptive species J james lovelock he had a really um poignant um uh i was gonna say poignant point but sure we'll run with that um where he was talking about you know so if we disrupt natural sort of ecosystem support services 
Um, yes, we can probably adapt. And he kind of gave the example of like wetland filtration of water, for instance. And he's like, yes, we have the technological capacity to essentially make a dialysis machine, but that's going to be a major drag on us. And I mean, just, you know, as <laughs> the, the metaphor was powerful for me because I yeah. see, I see well, patients on we, dialysis three days a week, four hours at a time. It's horrible, right? Like, you know, so yes, we, you know, I, we, I think I mean, technically we can, humans can, sorry, I was just going to say, yeah. uh, think about a sort of in, uh, in, um, environmental uh, dialysis machine. Uh, well, we have those, they're called submarines. When we go down uh, deep into the ocean, um, we can do that. It's certainly a breath that we would want to live permanently in that way. Or even a more um, um, a quotidian sort of example, it's certainly possible for humans to live in the middle of the desert. We can build um, uh, buildings with, with, with air conditioning. But then it's really hard to get from building to building. It's a drag. You can't sit outside to have a nice uh, picnic or anything like that. So there's a reason why there's a sort of area in the world where humans tend to congregate. We might be able to adapt to a world of uh, uh, this five degrees warmer, but do we want that world? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're still there. You're just nodding um, pensively. No, no. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, personally, no. And I think that's, you know, I, I talked a lot about wizards and prophets, Charles Mann's uh, concept of the, the archetypes. And I think eco-modernists um, tend to have more of a comfort with the idea of like a real transition away from, say, like pastoral scenes of traditional agriculture towards like a nuclear powered vertical farming or growing protein in vats, you know, like fixing carbon from the atmosphere and enzymatic processes. And, you know, I tend to say like, maybe we can like have a little bit of both. And I think we're going to need to shift towards these um, technological fixes just to like lessen our impact and that whole idea of like decoupling versus harmonizing with nature you know Bill's a big fan of the green revolution and I think is trying to bring some of those things to Africa certainly there's there's big critiques um, of the green revolution and and you know I'd brushed a lot of them off until I talked to Charles Mann and he you know he was talking about how you know the green revolution dramatically increased yields which also really increased the value of land and led to a lot of expropriation by people who you know rich people who you know who didn't really give a shit about this marginal land but all of a sudden it could produce a lot of profit and like we have to acknowledge that there's there's you know major enclosures yeah but that's not the green rev- but that's that, that's that's not the technology no it's the uh, that's not the transfer that's yeah. the the that's the that will know it's the the system the relationship of production in which that revolution happened yeah. you wouldn't one can imagine a, a a socialist society that doesn't have um uh where social relations are not based primarily on on, on property uh, and markets that that same um technology introduced would not have that uh, impact on, yeah. on those people in that way um, so once again it, it's this confusion between <clears throat> You know, to use Marxist old Marxist jargon, this confusion between the relations of production, a yeah, our social relations, and the forces of production, basically technology, and, and targeting the technological change, missing what actually is causing the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, there's there's other obviously impacts of the green revolution, like a you know a, a dramatic increase in fertilizer use, and and not that that's bad, but you know inefficient uses of fertilizer and and eutrophication as a result, or you know, much more irrigation and depletion of aquifers and things like that. And, and that's why I think it's very interesting. There's a great book called Food 5.0 that, that goes through sort of the five stages of, of agriculture that we've seen so far, like a muscle powered agriculture, um, you know, largely slave power to a large degree, um, or, you know, certainly with that included, um, moving to uh, like mechanized agriculture, you know, tractors, you know, machinery, uh, to chemical, you know, with a lot of pesticides added into genetic engineering. And then this last phase that he talks about is precision agriculture, where you're using a lot of like, you know, high tech sensors to really minimize the use of all of those inputs. I mean, not necessarily genetic engineering, but the chemical inputs um, you know, and filling up soil. And, and to me, I mean, if, if, you know, if that can be brought to underdeveloped places um, and you can sort of get the best of both worlds of, you know, excellent technologies, you know, minimization of the application of, of some of these potentially environmentally harmful inputs, you know, and the right politics that, you know, can be conducive to, you know, good social relations, then, you know, that's, 
but but I think I think what you're getting at is you know this unique focus on sort of crit critiquing the technology. You know, it's 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 basically depriving people of the right to to choose and to you know increase yields and increase you know that. Well, that it's also yeah. yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but it's also um, there's a, there's a, there's a hint hint of luddism within there that um, that imagines that. Um, well, one, it's 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 a misdirection from from the source of the problem, which is market relations, not the technology. So, uh, and and secondly, it sort of imagines that uh, there was some period prior to the development of these technologies that was good or better. And that isn't the case. And finally, I think there's a there's a even more basic problem here, where there's an idea that we could have a society without any problems. Mm -hmm. that's not feasible. Um, whatever new technology we, we develop, and you, your example of the aquifer uh, um, uh, exhaustion there, um, we develop a new technology that will be unforeseen consequences as a result of that. There will be new problems. Okay, so we pro solve those problems, but in the process of solving those problems, new problems will arise, and so on and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, the, the key is if in the process of uh, solving some problems have we actually retreated, or overall, are we, despite the new problems, are we better? Have, have we actually progressed? And, um, I mean, and, you know, Norman and Borlaug, I think sometimes there's the... Sorry, yeah, I mean, Norman Borlaug, who, sorry. Norman Borlaug who, who Gates, you know, heaps a lot of praise on. I mean, he did save a billion lives, yeah, yeah. right? Like, that's... Exactly. You know, there was, he won a Nobel Prize for a reason. It's not that his legacy is, is completely simplistically positive, but I mean that's that's pretty hard to ignore right like we've we've been living in a kind of post-famine age for yeah. the last 50 60 years but let's yeah let's, let's I, I, bell gates uh writes in the book about how he's uh, built uh, how borlaug is one of his great heroes yeah. i would agree i think that's it was a heroic thing uh what happened there yeah yeah so let's let's kind of get back into the book i guess we've you know certainly we've been talking tangentially but it's been directly related um, were you surprised at all? Like, what, another thing I liked was he, you know, he was able to sort of do the math for us, you know, 50 gigatons per year. Um, and we need to get that to zero. You know, the sources of emissions was, were you surprised by that? I mean, electricity, 25%, agriculture, 24%, manufacturing, 21%, transport only 14%, and, and buildings like heating and cooling only 6%. That was a revelation for me. Um, it wasn't so much of a revelation for me because I have over the years paid a lot of attention to um, greenhouse gas inventories that countries have to submit to the UNFCCC every UN uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change every year. Um, and one of my um, frustrations with some of the green left has been, like for example, within Jacobin Magazine, uh, there will be writers who constantly harp about harp on about how we need to. Uh, stuff, um, um, you know, extra insulation, uh, re retrofit buildings. I'm like, I'm not opposed to that, but that is one of your primary sort of targets for mitigation when um, the, uh, in, in the United States, and certainly the, uh, the emissions reductions, uh, the gains from that would be relatively small compared to say something like cement or, um, or steel production. And, um, I love Bill Gates's, uh, you know, his framing of these questions, these five questions that, yeah, to, 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 to assess whether somebody's serious about climate change. And one of them is, okay, so what's your plan for cement? And that's been like my, like, I've been thinking that myself all, whenever I come across these grand plans, uh, these, uh, you know, 100% renewable energy plans, uh, degrowth, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I never see any commentary about, well, what do we do about cement or steel, mm -hmm. uh, these industrial processes? <clears throat> and they're huge, a huge part of our, um, um, uh, what we have to be doing. And the, yeah. the thing is, it does, but it doesn't fit into a very simple narrative of villainy, yeah. uh, the way that uh, fossil fuel companies do. And so I think that's why it's ignored. Also, I think just in general, there's a, um, there's a friend of mine, Fred Stafford, who put it recently that, um, you know, he's, he's written a lot about nuclear for Jackman as well. And uh, he put it that it's it's easier to convince uh, sort of technically minded STEM uh, people of the, the limitations of markets than it is and the need for economic planning than it is to try to convince socialists and green green lefties of the need for an understanding of technical questions. Yeah, 
Yeah, uh, uh, they, just, they just are unfamiliar with some of these issues. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, in terms of the cement issue, uh, one of the one of the figures Bill Gates uh, states is this: you know, we're building a new New York City every month for the next forty years is what we estimate in terms of the amount of concrete being poured. And I, I can't remember the stat, but you know, in the last ten years, China's poured more concrete than the U.S. has in the last hundred years. I mean, it's it's wild. Yeah, yeah. it's wild for sure. Um, yeah, you know, and and in terms of anybody concerned with social justice. You know, one of our major, major demands is a massive build out of public housing to solve the, the enormous housing crisis across the Western world, right? Well, where do we, how do we do that without cement? Now, I actually said this on Twitter once and uh, some, you know, greenie re responded, oh, have you never heard of log cabins? <laughs> and I immediately thought, well, hold on a sec. Just five minutes ago, weren't you complaining about deforestation? Can you imagine the amount of deforestation that would occur if we just we had this massive public housing built out and it was all log cabins and the land footprint? It's just not joined up thinking. <laughs> Sorry. You know, I have I have a reflection. You know, in terms of like engaging with you know that kind of an argument or engaging with um, you know the kind of extreme fundamentalist anti-nuclear folks like they suck up so much oxygen and so much of our attention and you know more recently in terms of my advocacy and activism you know it's like I got you just gotta ignore these people they're not rational or reasonable and you know trying to appease them it's, it's just a losing strategy and like we need to be talking to I don't know whether to call it the mushy middle people that are a bit undecided like we yeah. really need to tailor arguments to that group because you know, especially with nuclear, we're trying to satisfy these these demands, which are just and and, and unfortunately, Bill Gates plays into this in, in terms of how he talks about nuclear. You know, he's getting a lot of credit for, um, you know, at least not being anti-nuclear, I would say, um, and his embrace of advanced nuclear. But nowhere in this book does he say that we have to save existing plants that are at risk of political closure, yeah. right? Which is, you know, the U.S. is going to lose five gigawatts this year. And I mean, I, I haven't got the calculation off my head in terms of, you know, how many million tons of CO2 that is. Um, you know, nowhere does he in this book talk about the, really the contributions of existing nuclear to date. Um, you know, and he basically focuses on, you know, this innovation, innovation, innovation thing and that we need to make it safer. We need to deal with waste. Um, you know, we have basically it's it's the safest form of energy generation you know apart from chernobyl which again you know if you look at the world health uh, estimates it's it's still quite low you know max about 4000 people but proven less than 100 fukushima zero tmi zero um, or the waste issue. I mean, I, I've, you know, did an interview with someone recently about deep geologic repository and, you know, the, the fuel is placed in a geologic formation, you know, multiple layers of containment beyond that steel, copper, et cetera, but where water moves a meter every 3 million years. And the only mechanism for that, you know, waste to get to the biosphere is essentially, it's got to get through all those barriers, right? It's got to, you know, dissolve a solid like ceramic fuel pellet and carry away enough radioisotopes for that, then get through whatever the bentonite clay layer. But then like it's got to move through that rock formation. And like people's imaginations are like volcanic geysers of nuclear fuel that are gonna, you know, like, waste that that spewing up through like half a kilometer of overburden. And it's just ridiculous. And you know, it's the industry as well that are trying to appease this this tiny minority will never be appeased and and bill gates is yeah. hoping to appease them with you know advanced nuclear with even better safety and you know be dealing with the waste and it's just like we're on this tight timeline you know and developing this new technology that can consume waste or create waste that only lasts 300 years that should not be our priority we have lots of time to work on waste civilian nuclear waste has not harmed like not killed a single person in the history of civilian nuclear waste like let's lay that aside and i wish bill had made those arguments because we need someone really influential we need an influencer so that these arguments aren't coming from like, uh, you know, the pro nuclear fringe. So that, that was very yeah. frustrating for me in terms of, you know, I think a lot of people are giving him a lot of credit for putting nuclear on the agenda. You know, there's, he's recently said like absolutely attitudes to nuclear are going to and have to change, but you know, it wasn't enough for me. Maybe that's not surprising to my listeners. Yeah. Um, Gosh, I mean, I think there's uh, so many good things in the book, but uh, particularly, as I say, around um, the, the key role of government in, 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 in industrial policy, technology policy, innovation. Uh, maybe we can talk about that in, 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 in a minute. But yeah, the crucial thing that he's missing there, absolutely, is that actually over here, 
uh, we have this technology that is pretty damn good already. Um, not just for decarbonizing electricity, but actually also for um, you know, developing um, clean fuels, um, desalinization. Um, I, I, you know, it's the Swiss army knife of, of, of energy technologies in a way that nothing else is. Um, and it seems like even many of the pro-nuclear people, or not many, but there are, there's a certain number of people within the sort of pro-nuclear camp that are so... Uh, you know, they're bending over backwards to accept and, and, and conform to the existing um, uh, green narrative about nuclear and say, well, it's not quite as bad as that. And they're, they're not really singing from the rooftops about how amazing it is. And I think part of it does come down to the fact that what you had just said a few minutes ago about, you know, we're f and I get caught up in this as well, is that um, we spend a lot of time focusing on these people who take up a lot of oxygen in the, in the discourse. So it's one group of NGOs speaking to another group of NGOs and activists, um, rather than speaking to what you call the mushy middle, but I would just call it like ordinary working people and particularly mm -hmm. trade unions um, who are not anywhere near as hung up on these issues. Um, uh, work at the, you know, the coal face, let's say, of nuclear and uh, um, uh, other energy um, uh, services and really get um, how uh, nuclear can play a, a role in terms of a just transition um, for a lot of oil and gas and, uh, and other fossil, uh, fossil workers. And if we can focus our energies on getting them on board with a green nuclear deal um, uh, that has some other aspects as well, certainly, uh, but the, that is where we should be focusing our energy because also that's where the votes are. There are many, many more people in trade unions and are just simply in the working class outside of trade unions than there are in, um, you know, add all the NGOs, the green NGOs together. Yeah. No, what I mean, you know, in terms of my own advocacy, something that I did recently that I, that I was, I don't know, I guess kind of proud of and want, wanted to share as, as an example, if there's other advocates out there maybe listening to this podcast, though, was, uh, you know, we, we got this open letter in support of Nuclear for Climate Change signed by James Hansen, a bunch of other notables. And, you know, it's, it's very hard to get into the mainstream media. Um, unfortunately, they wouldn't pick it up as a story. Then the national newspapers, you know, they wanted $15,000, you know, to publish it kind of as an ad. And so what I ended up doing was looking at, you know, because a lot of nuclear, some nuclear in Canada, but a lot, of in, a lot of nuclear in the States is, you know, they're based in small towns. And that media is much more open. And I've really felt like exactly what you're saying, yeah. we need to speak to that base, mobilize them. Um, show them like, you know, break the stigma, show them that they are, we appreciate, you know, the zero carbon electricity, the lack of, you know, the lack of air pollution, the medical isotopes, whatever it may be, um, and, and kind of mobilize that group. And I think that's the first constituency that you went over. And, you know, through publishing that letter and a kind of shout out like, a, hey, thank you for what you do. Um, you're at the forefront of, you know, the climate and in Canada's case, the COVID battle. I mean, producing enough cobalt 60 to sterilize 40% of the world's surgical instruments, you know, 20 right. billion pieces of PPE. You know, that, that's where I think, that's where I think we need to be putting our efforts, you know, to start. Um, I keep saying, you know, let's get back to the book here. And, and I think this is all sort of growing off of the book. Um, but yeah, and, and well, it is, well, it's because of course, somebody like Bill Gates, does not, and also NGOs. Um, for all of the good that they do, and they do do good work, um, just because of their social, their position within society, it's going to be easier for them to overlook this huge um, uh, group of people who have enormous uh, social weight and voting power. Um, they're not going to be thinking about trade unions first, first and foremost. Mm. Um, they're... You know, he's, 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 he's a business person. He's a billionaire. Um, um, and the, you know, NGO uh, staff, and I include myself in that, in this sort of professional managerial class of people, um, we are somewhat cut off from, um, from, from the bulk of the working class. If we could marry... What he says in here with a solutions, uh, innovation, how uh, pr private market actors are actual uh, technology is proven. If we can marry all that, that amazing package of, of stuff with the defense of uh, conventional nuclear 
and a focus on um, trade union mobilization, working class mobilization, in order to um, um, uh, drive this change. I think that's a pretty good package of, um, of uh, for driving a clean, uh, a radical and rapid uh, clean transition that is just um, and hits all of the um, the greenhouse gas inventory boxes. Mm -hmm. You broke up for a second there, but we'll just, uh, sorry, listeners, <laughs> this video thing's probably uh, straining sorry. my bandwidth, but it, I think it's okay. We got, we got most of what you were saying. Yeah. I mean, just to kind of, I guess, close up on the nuclear side of things. I mean, certainly I, I like his critique that, you know, we, we need to focus not just on the kind of low hanging fruit. I mean, electricity again was what, 25% of global emissions. That's maybe one of the easier things to fix. Um, but cement, steel, but I mean, all of those things, you know, energy is the master resource and he'll say sort of, yeah, we need, you know, we'll need clean energy to do that. Sometimes he'll slip and say renewable energy, uh, but he'll often not name nuclear and just kind of talk about other energy innovations. I got to say, one of the things I really, really liked, especially as, you know, this guy's a software guru was he was saying energy is not like software. There is no Moore's law for energy, right? Yeah. You know, it's not about fitting microprocessors on a chip. This is not something where you design a great software with no regulation, essentially, um, and where the you know copying and distribution is essentially free. Um, energy doesn't work that way. There's there's physics-based limits. What there's the Shockley-Kaiser limit, the Betts limit on sort of how many photons you can turn into electrons, or you know in terms of wind potential, we're getting close to those. You know fuel efficiency for Henry Ford's Model T. Uh, you know, 21 miles a gallon. Now we're 51 miles a gallon. That's gone up by a factor of three, but we're not seeing, it's not going to be exponential. And there's so much magical thinking, I think about energy. I was really happy to see him bust through that and, you know, talk about capital costs may go down as we get a little bit better, but each power plant still a lot of concrete, a lot of steel. It's a lot of, a lot of investment. So I, I got to say, I'll give Bill kudos on that <laughs> for sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, particularly, with respect to, to batteries. Um, I think that's, a, again, this is a, we have a bit of sort of magical thinking within some um, parts of the green movement, uh, certainly in the green left, where there isn't a familiarity with some of these technical aspects. And they just sort of think that, oh, well, you know, if you, yeah, it, it will just happen. Mm -hmm. um, and again, he, you know, Bill Gates does a very good job of like, walking the reader through what those challenges are with respect to these particular technologies these particular technologies and why you're not going to see a similar replication as you have done with uh with uh, um uh with transistors and um i don't know what i would say about that i guess i just wish more people would would pay attention to that sort of stuff um yeah, my, my feeling on that is is because there's kind of such a de facto rejection of nuclear, um, like what you're left with as, as like, quote unquote, scalable sources is wind, solar, something to deal with intermittency, that it's kind of painful for these folks to actually start looking critically at what is sort of the salvation, um, it, having rejected completely nuclear that, you know, there's there's either like a cognitive dissonance that, that really impacts, like, you know, Bill McKibben's um, review of of uh gates book was was pretty hilarious and you know his solution basically boiled oh, i haven't read that yet wind solar batteries getting cheaper 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 that's what we need yeah, to do yeah. we need to follow mark you know i wish he'd listen to mark z jacobson for god's sakes um <laughs> and you know all we need to do is just crush and, and build out renewables and and it's just well gates yeah. gates has this really great anecdote that he's used in the past but he 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 writes it up again in, in the book about tokyo uh, you know, Tokyo um, as a city requiring, I think I might get the numbers wrong here because um, I'm trying to remember them rather than, I was just looking, trying to find it, uh, the passage and I couldn't find it. So I think he says it's, it's 23 gigawatts and which is, you know, a massive um, amount of power. Um, and, you know, every year um, or, uh, Tokyo is battered by typhoons for just a few days. And so that's a moment when um, it, imagine Tokyo was completely run on uh, on wind energy. In the typhoon, you, you've got to shut those uh, those uh, those wind turbines down. And if you're following the Mark C. Jacob, Jacobson, uh, Bill McKibben pathway of just oh well, just we have all these batteries to just. I mean the the sheer volume and cost of of twenty three gigawatts worth of of, of batteries. Uh, 
just for three days a year is completely irrational. Never, I mean, before we even get to the, the, the like, where are we going to put all those? Um, what are the materials that uh, those? What is the land print of that? Um, even in a, let's say, a social necessity rather than a profitability, and we're not, we would, there's still sort of, uh, and that just would be completely irrational uh, for those three days a year. Yeah, I mean, I think the Japan example is good. We don't have to look any further, though, than something that was in the news very recently, namely Texas, right? Where, you know, if we follow, oh, yeah. if we follow the McKibben prescription, we're doing wind solar. I mean, maybe a massive overbuild. But, you know, in terms of what did fill in the gap, a bunch of natural gas, you know, froze up. But if you look at the profile of the generating capacity, natural gas, you know, did, did scale up to... Yeah keep the system from completely collapsing and you know batteries are going to do that in in you know yeah that's a really weather yeah. you know and you know nuclear trucked along it did trip we lost you know 25 percent of nuclear output you know everything was affected but you know it's it's funny like even the people kind of trying to stand up for wind in that environment are like well it's it's uh you know reliably unreliable so <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing to fill that gap batteries are not going to fill that gap Texas yeah. is down for what a week what's going to charge those batteries right like it it's yeah, yeah. no that, that's a, that's a really good point that um never mind this uh, tokyo example actually we, we have a real world example of this uh with texas um yeah and i mean meredith Angwin does a great job of, of talking about that very dangerous combination of wind and gas you know wind being unreliable and gas being just in time delivery and they don't pair well in terms, yeah. of, in terms of reliability you know, you know, in terms of like the last bit on, on, you know, the critique of McKibben's critique of Gates is, you know, if you follow the Mark Z. Jacobson plan, you know, the, the, we're, we're adding tons of solar capacity by the time we get to 2050 and we're up to hundred percent renewables, um, you know, people have done the calculations. We'd be replacing 1.23 square kilometers of solar panels every um, year forever. Uh, sorry, every day, sorry, every day forever. And I did the math on that. That's close to 500 square kilometers of solar panels needing to be replaced per year, every year into the future, right? So there's this concept of right. durability, right? Like I think an argument against nuclear as well, listen, it's taking a while to build plants. We have nine years, 10 years, 12 years, 2050, but it's not that we need to get to zero emissions, you know, obviously the sooner the better, but that needs to be durable. Right. We, we, if we have infrastructure that lasts 60, 80 years and has a tiny land footprint and tiny material footprint, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the argument sort of makes itself there. Um, and and in, in my opinion, I think, you know, a critique of the book was that it was too gentle on, on renewables for my liking, uh, too charitable. It fits in with the language you see in the media all the time of, you know, we haven't yet solved the issue with intermittency with renewables. I mean, this is not solvable on a scalable sense, right? Uh, you know, yes, you could overbuild in a little locality or build enough batteries for a, you know, a, a private, you know, electrically gated, gated microgrid and, you know, maybe make some hydrogen as a demonstration project. But, you know, there's that key challenge that has been issued of, okay, 100% renewables, take this city, you got to power this whole city, no back, no, no fossil backup, go for it, see how it goes. Like, would anyone sign on to that? Or, you know, these companies, um, including, I'm not sure Microsoft, but Apple, who, you know, we're going to go, you know, 100% renewables, they've now said 100% clean energy, but it's, right. you know, they're, they're buying diesel generators, you know. <laughs> let's, let's shift gears and talk a little bit about, you know, Bill's big on, you know, the government, yes, needs to really, I think, quintuple its yeah. investment in, in energy R&D, I mean, across, across the sector, that's the history of the internet, for instance, of, of you know, so many of our in, in modern inventions that we, we take for granted had their, their basis in, in government research. But he's very happy, you know, to once they're proven, pan, hand them over to the private sector to commercialize and deploy. Um, what's your take on that? So I think what he's doing here is a very simplified version of what uh, Italian American is, Italian American economist, uh, Mariana Mazzucato talked about within her uh, her book the entrepreneurial state and it's a really really crucial insight to understand that um, innovation doesn't really happen uh, very often in the private sector it happens primarily by government labs uh, university labs and the reason for that is because um, if if a new technology new concept um, a, a new bit of science comes along and hasn't been proven yet 
um, how to make that prof profitable, it's really difficult to get investors um, to, to, to support that technology. Um, the, um, and so you really, really do need um, innovation policy, industrial policy, um, economic planning, use of procurement, uh, government procurement, uh, to, to be able to take that new technology, new concept, um, through the value of death, through to, to, through to commercialization. It's not just about government funding basic research, it's about government uh, funding and supporting and de-risking um, uh, the, the commercialization process. And I'm a big supporter of this. I think this is an excellent um, idea and I wish uh, that the, uh, the left um, took innovation policy more seriously. We don't talk enough about this. I mean, it's fundamentally a social democratic concept. It, it, you have to, uh, to describe this, you have, a, you have to have a fundamental understanding of the limitations of the markets. Rather than the neoliberal concept of markets, which is the well, markets are superior to everything compared to, and government just needs to get out of the way. Mm. Um, the, the challenge there is what do we do, as you say, you know, at the, at the, uh, at the, at the, at the, the back end, or, or uh, when once that has been done, does government then just get out of the way? I think what Bill Gates doesn't talk about and what Mariana Mazzucato does talk about is sort of innovative ways of, of government recouping its investment, just like um, a venture capitalist would. So, yeah. you know, okay, the, the state is, uh, is de-risking this this potential new technology. Um, we are may not be in the business of um, manufacturing, the state may not be in the business of manufacturing this particular commodity, although in some cases it might be. Um, and then in it's spin off into the private sector to let the private sector do that, it'll be in return for um, um, you know a cut of yeah of once they produce that. Once you do that, the state then is able, that's a new revenue stream for the state. Mm. It, uh, what it has happened up until this point is that the state has been the major locus of innovation on, in almost all sectors. And then it just basically gives uh, this, these technologies away in the form of you know, university uh, spin-offs. Well, why should we be doing that? We should be the, the, the public sector, the state, the people, the taxpayers, were the ones who Took, uh, took on the risk, we should get a reward for that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that he, he doesn't talk about there. Um, and this comes into another sort of issue that I have a problem with um, the book is that, uh, because that's an interesting way of, of, of increasing revenue, gov government revenues. And one of the crucial problems with, with, with Gates's their perspective with respect to the importance of government, not just with respect to climate change, but also when he talked about pandemic, um, uh, monitoring uh, systems and building of factories or whatever. It, this requires a level of uh, government resources, either borrowing or taxation. And billionaires in the, the capitalist class inherently have a resistance to the increasing uh, taxation and or borrowing that would um, have a, 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 you know, an impact on their, on, their, on, their, on their wealth, on their capital. Um, it, there isn't just this simple trick. Um, and there was, there was a very interesting uh, sort of pop interview done with Bill Gates last year by uh, Stephen Colbert, mm. where Colbert actually does ask a sort of pointed question. And he says, you know, it's lovely that you're, uh, you're talking about all these, you, you know, government funding of, of these, these programs, uh, but um, <clears throat> are you willing to pay, say, uh, the tax rate of um, in France, the, where briefly for a few years, the top income tax rate was 70%. And Gates says, whoa, 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 steady on here. Like, you know, uh, that's going a bit too far. Well, if we look at the ability of governments to uh, just even uh, keep their international commitments uh, under the, the Paris Agreement of mobilizing uh, $100 billion US a year in uh, climate finance for the developing world, just a hundred billion. Yeah. It's not as cheap, I mean, it's a substantial amount of money, but it isn't, uh, I mean, they should be able to afford this. And because of neoliberal constraints on, on taxation, they are, um, for, you know, for the last 40 years, they are unwilling to increase taxation in order to be able to fund that. Uh, so they're not even being able to keep that level of, uh, of commitment. Can you imagine uh, the level of taxation or resistance from uh, from corporations and the wealth of the billionaires if we actually did if a government did try to implement what bill gates is calling for yeah uh, you know it's it's interesting when i was looking at those 70 percent marginal tax rates you know in corporate tax rates that were also very high 
apparently part of what that encouraged was um, actually, you know, you, in terms of getting a tax write-off, it, it, it meant not just kind of giving shareholder dividend payouts, because that would get, you'd still be taxed high on that, but actually investment, hiring more workers, building more infrastructure, you know, spending your money as a tax write-off on, you know, improving the business, on, on expanding, providing more jobs, whatever, that, that was a way to spare taxes. And that was part of what that tax policy um, really encouraged. Um, so it, it's interesting because I think yeah. people think, oh, that's going to be overly punitive of the corporation. But what we have right now, and again, I'm not an economist, I'm pretty terrible at this, but we have, you know, a lot of finance that's just sitting there speculatively, not being invested, not being used. And, you know, if, if there's ever a time that we need to do that, it's, it's now. Oh, yeah. You, you know, you go, you go back to the 1950s and, you, you know, the Republican president of the United States, um, Eisenhower, you know, you have a top, a top um, uh, uh, tax bracket of, I think it was 95 percent. Don't quote me on the exact figure, but it's, you know, ridiculously high compared to, to what we have today. And you look at the discourse around that and why that was implemented. It wasn't the idea wasn't some socialist pu uh, punitive measure. It was precisely to drive innovation. It was like if you, if these corporations um, take that money and they deliver to shareholders um, or owners instead of reinvesting it in the uh, in the company. Yeah, uh, that's a, that's a complete. That's a, it's, you, you're missing out on an enormous um, way to uh, to expand economic growth, to drive innovation, to uh, to create jobs. Uh, that's why they were doing it, and uh, yeah, um, qu quite the contrary to the neoliberal argument that. Um, uh, high tax rates um, um, uh, undermine innovation and undermine job growth. That's actually what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Uh, the problem is what, why social democracy isn't sufficient here is we do need to, um, uh, to ask, well, why did that happen in the first place? Why did we retreat from that set of policies that almost all Western governments in the post-war period um, adhere to for bit, roughly between, say, about 1945 to 1975, maybe late 1970s? early 1980s in some cases. Why did that happen? It's because um, by the 1960s, you know, full employment, high levels of taxation uh, to deliver social spending and um, to drive innovation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, was happening, was, uh, was impinging upon uh, profitability and uh, increasing, um, yeah, basically, there was there was a political resistance to that from the capitalist class and demanded a breaking of working class power, demanding a breaking uh, a, a retreat from uh, public uh, social spending uh, in, order to, in order to restore that profitability. Um, and, you know, complementary to that, we have sort of globalization and financialization of the economy. And what this has resulted in is that even if you did ha elect a new government that wanted to uh, revert to a sort of more social democratic, classic uh, uh, post-war um, set of, of, of policies, what the French call les 30 glorious, the 30 glorious years, um, there would be immediate capital flight and economic sabotage on the part of, uh, of people like Bill Gates um, to, uh, to discipline the that particular government. Mm -hmm. And uh, within months, that government would have to retreat from those sort of policies. So we do have to begin to be talking about something much more globally oriented, um, uh, some sort of global social democracy. How do we do that? That's that's a huge ask. Um, and um, the left at the moment isn't sort of envision, envis envisaging any of these sorts of these questions. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, it, yeah. I remember reading about uh, the South African experience emerging from apartheid and they had, you know, very ambitious plans to build a, you know, very social democratic state, you know, this kind of uh, progressive taxation in order to fund, you know, developing <laughs> this like uh, underdeveloped uh, part of society, right? And uh, they were severely financially disciplined and the RAND was, you know, dropped in value, like, excruciating drop. And it was only when they committed to a bunch of IMF packages and austerity packages that, that yeah, yeah. you know, that their currency <laughs> reemerged from that punishment, you know, and, and, uh, uh Fred, you could say, you could say Francois Mitterrand, um, yeah. the, the French socialist president elected in 1981 and on a very broad platform of a return to, um, expansive social spending, uh, increasing workers' wages, um, that whole sort of uh, post-war package within months, 
and this is just the early 80s, before the high point of, of, of neoliberalism in the sort of 1990s, within months he had to retreat from, from that program. Yeah. Um, and that's the sort of program that would be required, to, again, to deliver on what Bill Gates is calling for. Yeah. So, so just uh, following up on, on the uh, adaptation side of things, um, on aid, I think one of the most powerful things I saw in the book um, was, you know, he's talking about how, um, you know, global, you know, Western aid uh, officials were saying, you know, we used to fund vaccines, but now we need to make our aid budget climate sensitive. And, you know, Bill's Gates, Bill Gates' response is, please don't take away vaccine money and put it into electric cars. Africa is responsible for only 2% of all global emissions. Um, yeah. You know, we need to fund adaptation, right? And, and you know, this, it's just, that was that was an incredibly powerful sentence to me and and kudos to bill gates for for making that statement oh yeah I, I, yeah absolutely uh, i don't know what more i could add to that <laughs> i agree yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, all right lee i mean i think we're uh you know we're, we're just getting past an hour here um cool. do you have anything major to add i mean we've had a very wide-ranging conversation um but any other takeaways from the book um, I mean, I did really want to get across this idea about um, sort of a, uh, that what I, I guess what I, I did, I, like, we just criticized it quite substantively, but um, I mean, in many respects, it is a sort of social democratic text for innovation. Mm -hmm. um, I would love for lefties to read it. Um, there have been a couple of um, well, I wouldn't even call them reviews because clearly the, 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 article, the authors of the articles haven't read the book um, from some progressive writers that I otherwise admire. And their initial sticking point, or the initial sort of jumping off point is, oh, he's a billionaire. The best thing that you can do is not be a billionaire. For, you know, that's the best thing you can do for climate change. It's like, well, yeah, I don't disagree with you, but come on. I mean, there's, please do take the book very, very seriously with respect to innovation policy, with respect to being very serious about um, the uh, the bins within um, greenhouse gas inventories, which not enough people are. Oh, I guess I would also say, I kind of, and I want to know what you thought about this. I kind of liked his concept of the green premiums. Right. What yeah. did you think about that? I, th I thought it's an interesting tool to understand, you know, which sectors require more innovation. Definitely. Yeah. You know, some of the examples, it sort of, it almost boils down to like an individual consumer choice, the way he frames the example, not, not in all examples of this, but, you know, and he's like, well, you know, if you could pay an extra, you know, dollar per gallon of fuel or $2, you could, you could drive on like, you know, clean biofuels. And that, what that neglects is, you know, the scalability of that. Like, yes, as an individual, you can do that. And he talks a lot about his offsets. You know, he has a private jet fleet that he uses to yeah. get around the world. And well, I, you know, I fund startups that, and, and, I, and I buy these offsets and it's very kind of individualistic and, and consumeristic. And we know that that's not the, the solution to climate change on the scale that we're talking about. So rub me a bit the wrong way. I mean, you know, what is the scalability of advanced biofuels and what are the relative impacts of that? And I think yeah. he's intelligent enough to criticize that, but some of the green premium stuff kind of rubbed me the wrong way from that sense. Um, um, I, I mean, to, uh, to give him his due, I think he probably used those examples because they're ones that are easy for readers to, to grok yeah to to get their, their their minds wrapped around but um it's just as true with respect to government procurement or uh, and i think the thing that i think that that really was important there was saying like even if we get um say a clean alternative to a, to a dirt to a dirty technology to be as cheap or even a little bit cheaper than um what it what it costs, what the dirty uh, technology costs, making it feasible for uh, us in Western countries to be able to, to make that shift pretty straightforwardly. There are parts of the world where they can't even afford the, the dirty alternative yet. So yeah. the green premium concept allows us to, to see how much farther we actually need to, to, to get to, uh, to make the, uh, the green alternative uh, radically cheaper than the uh, the dirty alternative. The example there I'm thinking of is fertilizer um, yeah. in parts of South Africa where they don't eat, like never mind them having a problem with the fact that fertilizer is uh, is this enormous uh, producer of, of, of greenhouse gas, but 
both production and use of it, is this uh, great, great uh, producer of greenhouse gases. They aren't even using it yet. Yeah. Uh, that's the, the, the greater uh, challenge there. So I, I did think that the green premium concept was a very, very useful metric that I hadn't thought about before. And I think I'll be using that, that in the future. So long as you, you're right, so long as we don't sort of use it as a sort of more cons- anti or consumer individual choice uh, sort of response to climate change. Yeah, yeah. And I think really explore what it looks like to scale up, not just as like a little individual example of, you know, and a lot of these technologies are in a nascent phase. And so, yes, to some degree, it, it makes sense to talk about them this way. But certainly, you know, other ones you can look at what it would require to scale and what the limits are from that. I think that gets lost a little bit in, in the green premium. So, you know, in closing, Lee, if you could sit down with Bill Gates, um, you had 10 minutes with him. Um, what, what would be you know, what you'd like to emphasize with him or what would you like to change his thinking on slightly? Um, you know, if you had that opportunity, he consults a lot of, a lot of world experts, he comes to you, what, what would you say in that time? And, and, you know, for him to maybe influence the broader public, because listen, this has got an influential guy. He's all over the media now. Yeah. Gates notes is out there. You know, he's, he has dominated the <laughs> global health discourse. I'm not saying he's going to dominate climate, but he's, this is a splash. This is, this book is a big deal. I would try to get across to him the fundamental contradiction between uh, what he wants to be doing uh, in terms of government policy and government spending and the, uh, the, his unwillingness and not merely personal unwillingness, but structural inability for his class, the, the owning class to, um, to enable that sort of spending that there's a, I would try to get across to him the, the fundamental contradiction of um, uh, between government spending and, and capital flight. Um, yeah, I think he's, he, he's, he's sort of like seven-tenths of the way there in terms of a, a effectively a, a left-wing critique of, of markets and why markets are a problem. Um, but he simply, he simply can't get the last um, um, three-tenths of the way there. I don't know if I would, but, you know, why would I try to convince him? I, I wouldn't be able to convince him because it isn't, it isn't a matter of him being a good or bad person. It's a matter of his place in society. Yeah. That I will, they can't change. Yeah. 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 I mean, for me, I think it would really be um, to try and influence, influence him on his messaging about nuclear to use his position, especially this elevated position he's got in the aftermath of this book um, to talk about saving existing nuclear. And, you know, and again, to prioritize the problem, which is to get to zero, not to solve the waste problem right now, or not to improve on safety margins, yeah. which are already, you know, absolutely excellent. You know, let's say he wanted to back, um, you know, an existing technology, like say the BWRX 300, if he wants to go kind of small modular and, and like work with the government on, on rolling that out. I mean, he's got <coughs> billions, he could throw something at it. And, 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 but I think he could pressure governments to, um, you know, take out low interest loans to finance something like that and, and get it off its feet. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, comparing the relative speed with which you can mobilize a sector within energy. I mean, nuclear is a slow beast to get moving, right? It it's, carries a massive payload in terms of the, the payoff of, of using it and, and in terms of carbon reductions, but it takes that coordinated government support. Um, yeah. To, to get it going in a way that like wind and solar are low hanging fruit because they're, you know, individual units are cheap to build. It's, it's very um, conducive to our sort of private financing arrangements that we have at present. So, you know, I don't know. I look at the Bezos fortune and, and the, the Gates fortune and I'm like, man, they could get a few plants built and they could kickstart this. That would be pretty cool. But yeah, yeah. I'm dreaming. But I think just on the message. Um, I, mean, I guess, um, you know, it's, it, you and I have a common critique of um, some of the focus within the pro-nuclear community, particularly in the United States, to sort of only about advanced nuclear, and they're not talking enough about existing nuclear being this great, already proven technology. Um, but what I would say, like flip that over, I do think there's uh, we do need advanced nuclear as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, Canada is a really great example of this. Um, conventional nuclear is not going to be able to decarbonize remote extraction, but small, very small modular reactors will be able to do that. Yeah. So <clears throat> I would rather there be a, um, a conversation about right-sizing the different types of nuclear rather than this 
<clears throat> I think completely um, uh, not very useful um, uh, battle between um, the defenders of conventional nuclear and the defenders of uh, advanced nuclear. We need them both. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's just interesting the way that, you know, innovation is supposed to save us lots of money, but like you look at designs like the APR, um, I, I think that's the American pressurized reactor, advanced pressurized reactor, APR 1000. And I mean, it's got a whole bunch of elements in it that are supposed to reduce costs. You know, it's, it's quite modular. There's a lot of factory built components and yet it's, you know, gone incredibly over budget. And, you know, I, I think there's a really solid analysis there that innovation actually can make things a lot more expensive. And certainly that needs to come, but it needs to come out of a healthy sector that knows how to build massive infrastructure projects. So. And, I agree. I totally agree. I totally yeah. agree. Yeah, I totally agree. All right. I mean, but, I don't it, like but it's, 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 sorry, I was just going to say smart, broadly social democratic um, innovation policy would be able to put those two things together. Yeah. The challenge with a lot of the, um, the, uh, the pro-advanced nuclear people in the United States is they're thoroughly captured by or partially captured by neoliberalism in the sense that either there's, there's those amongst them who, who, who are very sort of pro-market, other ones who recognize the limitations of markets, but have just basically given up on the, 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 the possibility of having any sort of American social democratic innovation policy or infrastructure policy. And so this is the next best um, option. Um, you know, you'll hear lines like, well, yeah, it is absolutely true that the very fastest way uh, to deeply decarbonize would, for, would be for us to embrace a France-style state-driven centralized uh, built out of conventional nuclear. But that's not going to happen. So we have to go with um, uh, advanced nuclear instead. It's not as good, but there's no other, there's no alternative. Yeah, no, absolutely not. And, you know, one would hope that the experience in Texas with their energy uh, only, you know, hyper deregulated market that does not value reliability or having any reserve capacity um, will be a stinging lesson for that. But <laughs> we'll see as the culture war is kind of... Uh, you know, just dumb down that debate. Yeah. Um, one would hope, one would hope. Lee, I think we'll, I think we'll wrap up there. Uh, very wide ranging conversation. I think we touched on, you know, most of the themes in the book. Um, certainly, again, I would, I would recommend picking it up and reading it. It's an important contribution. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks so much for coming on, Lee, to, uh, to discuss it. It was a lot of fun. All right. Yeah, it was, yeah, I enjoyed it too. All right, man. Over and out. Take care. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.